You want to follow through verse by verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul, in this section of the letter, has been answering questions brought to him by the Corinthians. Uh, They would write a letter to Paul, and in that letter were certain questions that they wanted him to answer. And really, uh, chapters 8 and 9 deal with basically the same theme, having to do with the same question. We jumped right into it here, verse 1, 1 Corinthians 8. Now concerning things offered to idols, we all know that we have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. And if anyone thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. Paul begins this chapter with just a simple phrase, now concerning things offered to idols. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul already dealt with their questions about marriage and singleness. And so now he addresses the next of their questions regarding the eating of meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now, this is a very foreign kind of thing to us in the first kind of glance at it, but I hope you'll be able to see tonight just what a relevant issue this is, or at least the principles related to this issue. In the ancient world, uh, they didn't have supermarkets like we have them now, but people still wanted to buy and sell food, of course. And one of the popular places where you could buy meat in an ancient city was at a pagan temple. Now, that might sound strange. Why would you buy meat at a pagan temple? Well, for the simple reason that people were always bringing animals to sacrifice to the altar of the pagan deity. And say at the temple of Zeus or Apollos or Diana, they would have uh, people bringing animals to sacrifice all the time. And typically, uh, the sacrifice was divided up into three portions. One portion was burnt in honor of the pagan deity on the altar. The other portion, or second portion, was given to the worshiper, and he would take that home and eat it. But a third portion was given to the priest. Now, let's say you were one of the priests here at the uh, pagan temple, and, you know, you did five sacrifices that day, and so you got five legs of lamb. Well, your family's not going to eat five legs of lamb, so what do you do with the extra legs of lamb? You sell it. And, And in this very simple way, pagan temples became not only temples of worship to the pagan god, but also they became meat markets and restaurants. You could go to the pagan temple, and I don't know, maybe they had like a food court there. I don't know exactly how the layout was. But you could eat a meal there, or you could purchase the meat there and take it home. Now, here's the other thing, too, is that, of course, that wasn't the only place you could obtain meat in an ancient culture. But the meat served and sold at the temple was generally cheaper, And just like now as well as then, Christians love a bargain, don't they? And so here was an issue. Can a Christian eat meat purchased at a temple meat market? What if you go to a friend's home, you know, hey, uh, you meet somebody in church, come on over our house for dinner. And they serve you that leg of lamb. And you're wondering, oi vey, where did this come from? Did this come from the pagan uh, meat market? How about, is it okay for a Christian to go to the restaurant at a pagan temple? 
So here were the questions that they were asking. And so he says, now concerning things offered to idols. Now I want you to see in verses 1 through 3, Paul doesn't deal with the issue directly at all. First, he wants to lay a foundation. And the foundation has to do with the place of knowledge in the Christian life. He starts out by saying, we know that we all have knowledge. You see, instead of talking about food, first Paul talks about the principles of knowledge and love. He says, we all know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now, let me say one thing from the get-go here. Christian behavior, how we live, what we do, Christian ethics, if you will, is not based primarily on knowledge, it's based on love. And that's what Paul's going to get to in this section. So he says in verse 1, knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You see, knowledge and love can both have an effect on our life. Both of them can make something grow in your life. When something is puffed up, it's growing, isn't it? When something is edified, it's growing. The idea of puffed up is like swelling as if it's being filled full of air. The idea of being edified is something growing up as if it's being built brick by brick, uh, board by board. It's the difference between swelling and being built. It's the difference between a bubble and a building. Can I just tell you that there's some Christians who grow and others just swell? And that's what he's talking about with the difference between being puffed up and edified. So he goes on to say in verse 2, and he goes, and if anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. In other words, you think you know it all, then you don't know anything, is what Paul's saying. Does that mean that all knowledge is irrelevant, that all knowledge is useless? No, look at verse what what Paul says in verse 3. You want to know the knowledge that's really important? If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. You want to know the knowledge that's really important? It's the knowledge God has of you. That's the knowledge that's really important. Our love to God and his knowledge of us. And kind of having put this whole thing of knowledge and love in the right place, because as we go through this, you're going to find out that one of the big problems with these uh, Christians was that they were obsessed with knowledge. Well, Paul, we know what's right. We know what's right. We know what's right. And Paul says, maybe you're focusing too much on knowledge and not enough on love. Having laid that groundwork, now he comes to verse 4. And he says, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is only one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. Do you get Paul's point here in these brief few verses? He says in verse 4, We know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no other God but one. In other words, when you go to the temple of Zeus and buy some meat that was offered to Zeus and somebody had brought that lamb before a statue of Zeus and cut the lamb up and sacrificed it and you bought the leg of lamb from that lamb, 
There's no real Zeus behind that statue. It's nothing. It's an illusion. It's just a statue. There's not some real Zeus or Apollos or Mercury or whatever sitting up on Mount Olympus somewhere. It's nothing. It's vain. It's a figment of somebody's imagination. They are so-called gods. Adam Clark says, there are many images that are supposed to be representations of divinities, but these divinities are nothing. The figments of mere fancy, and these images have no corresponding realities. Friends, simply put, there is no other God but the Lord God who sits enthroned in the heavens, period. And the Bible may speak in a metaphorical sense, for example, as human judges being gods, as it does in Psalm 89. Uh, excuse me, that's in Psalm 82. Uh, metaphorically, it speaks of human judges being gods, but it's just metaphorically. Nobody thinks for a moment that human judges really are gods, except perhaps the judges themselves. And then uh, the Bible speaks of, of uh, Satan being the god of this age. But it's using it in a metaphorical sense. It doesn't mean, if you were to ask Paul, oh, Paul, do you mean that, that the devil is really a god? No, he'd say. You don't, I'm using it as a figure of speech. Friends, when it comes down to reality, there is only one god, period. There are no other gods. And any supposed god is just an illusion. And so he says here in verse 4, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there are no other God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords. And by the way, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gods or so-called gods in the ancient world in the city of Athens, of course, which was not unique in this. But it's interesting, just as you see it in Acts chapter 17, they even built an altar to the unknown God, you know, just to cover their bases in case there was one that they missed. And so there were many, many of these so-called gods that were worshipped. But Paul makes it very plain in verse 6. Yet for us there is only one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. That's it. That's all there is to it. There is one God. Now, I think that for the most part, the Corinthian Christians were in agreement with Paul on this. And this was part of their problem. This was the knowledge that was kind of puffing them up. Because the Corinthian Christian would say, eat meat sacrificed to an idol, what's the big deal? An idol's nothing. It's nothing. It's just a statue. There's only one God, it's nothing. Eat in the temple restaurant at the temple of Zeus? Who cares? It's nothing. There's nothing there. It's an illusion. An idol is nothing. And so the Corinthian Christians, or at least some of them, may have been reasoning like this. If idols are really nothing, it must mean nothing to eat meat sacrificed to nothing idols, and it must mean nothing to eat in the buildings used to worship these nothing idols. That was the knowledge they had. When Paul is going to refer later on in this chapter to knowledge, that's the knowledge that these Corinthian Christians had. So, verse 7. However... All right? Paul says, we know all the facts. We know all that. All right? That's a given. Idols are nothing. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Do you understand what he's saying there? 
He's saying, you and I may know that an idol is nothing, but not everybody knows it. Not every Christian knows it. And for some Christians, it really stumbles them, the idea of eating meat sacrificed to Zeus. He says, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, with consciousness of the idol, until now, eat it as a thing offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, the Corinthian Christians who felt free to eat at the pagan temple may have based their freedom on correct knowledge, right? Their their knowledge was correct. But they were not being sensitive to their brothers and sisters who had different knowledge or who hadn't come to that knowledge. Now, Paul is asking the Corinthian Christians who know there is nothing to an idol to remember that not everyone knows this. And if someone believes that there is something to an idol, and if they eat meat that there has been sacrificed to an idol, their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, did you notice it in verse 7? And this is a very important point. Paul says that the person who does not have the knowledge that an idol is nothing, the person who doesn't really understand that, the person who would be stumbled, Paul says their conscience is weak. In what way is their conscience weak? Their conscience isn't weak in the sense that it doesn't work. Their conscience is working just fine, right? And it's convicting them. It's saying, oh man, you really sinned. You ate that that lamb chop from the temple of Zeus. You've got food in you that was sacrificed to an idol. So their conscience is not weak in the sense that it's inoperative. Their conscience is weak in the sense that it is wrongly informed. Their conscience is operating on the idea that there is really something to that idol. And Paul says, look, we know there's nothing there. Now, can you just imagine the mindset of the free Corinthian Christians? The ones who felt free to eat the meat sacrificed to the idols? By the way, and Paul doesn't condemn them for that in and of itself. But can you imagine that? They say, hey, come on over to my house for dinner. And they invite someone over to their dinner, uh, to their house. And they know that person has a problem with eating meat sacrificed to idols. And so they serve before them lamb chops. And the guy, oh man, lamb chops. God, where did this come from? And the guy says, what's it to you? <laughs> Doesn't make any difference, does it? And you know what? Paul just pictures these Corinthian Christians, the ones who have the knowledge that an idol is nothing, saying, listen, we're right, aren't we? We're right. That Christian's wrong, and we're right. An idol's nothing. And they're acting like an idol's something. We're right, and Paul says we're right. And Paul says, listen, you may be right, but there's something more important than you being right. It's more important for you to love and to build up your brother or sister in Jesus Christ than it is for you to be right. And so, Paul says, verse 8, But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Do you get that, friends? Food does not commend us to God. You aren't more spiritual because you can eat that lamb chop that was sacrificed to an idol. 
You're not more spiritual because you won't touch the lamb chop that was sacrificed to Zeus. You're not more or less spiritual either way. No, my friends. No one is more or less spiritual for that. It just matters where their conscience is and their conscience needs to be respected. Now, isn't this at the very point where most Christians stumble in issues relevant to Christian liberty? You know, there's a lot of differing opinion among Christians as to what Christians can or cannot do and still be Christians and still be walking right with God. Uh, In some places, in some circles, uh, if a Christian smokes, oh my gosh, I, I can't believe it. They smoke. Man, you know, I'm so sorry to hear they lost their salvation. They're smoking. In other places, the pastor will hand you a cigarette after service. In some Christian communities, to drink alcohol, oh my gosh, it's just the most forbidden thing. In other Christian communities, after they're done with church, they go over to the pub and hang out for a while. In some Christian communities, uh, you know, uh, to watch television, absolutely forbidden. Other Christian communities, doesn't bother them. And you can just go down the list with whatever it is, movies, drinking, music, television, Now, I'll tell you, this is where Christians get messed up on this. They get messed up by thinking that whatever their conscience tells them to do, that they are more spiritual than another Christian for doing what their conscience tells them to do. And, you know, it's almost silly for me to focus on any particular issue. You know, because uh, any issue that I would pick, you know, could be a real hot button for somebody. So let's just keep the issue back to eating meat sacrificed for idols, and you'll get the picture. But you know how to apply it in some issue in your life, right? Something that you've been challenged with. Friends, if I go around uh, thinking that I'm more spiritual because I have the liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols, I'm wrong. But then again, if I think I'm more spiritual because I would never touch it. Oh, and I'm just praying for my brothers and sisters. Matter of fact, I'm in their face all the time. Tell them, how dare you name the name of Christ and eat that lamb chop. And it's becoming a big... You know what? Look, just be persuaded unto yourself. Right? Just be persuaded unto yourself. Let the, if your brother or sister is wrong on that issue, let the Lord speak to their heart. Maybe you are right and maybe they are wrong. There are more important things than you being right and wrong There's the love and the unity in the body of Christ. So, Paul would say, just leave it up between God and them. And don't stumble your brother or sister. But the whole idea of stumbling, the whole idea, it's based in this idea that I am more spiritual because of what I do or because of what I don't do. And Paul says, look at verse 8 again. Food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, uh, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. Uh, Take it to another thing. Uh, But dancing does not commend us to God, for neither if we dance are we the better, or if we do not dance are we the worse. You know, can Christians dance? Some can and some can't. But I mean, apart from that, you know, if your conscience tells you this is something you shouldn't have anything to do with, or if your dignity tells you that, for heaven's sakes, (laughs) then have nothing to do with it. 
But if you feel you have a freedom before the Lord and God isn't convinced, fine, I do it, then fine. But neither one should think of themselves as more spiritual than the other. And oh, is that where Satan wants to get us. You know, it's very easy for the person who feels they have more freedom. What do they do? They look at that other legalist. What a bunch of hang-ups. Man, if they only knew their freedom in Jesus Christ. Man, you know, I can do this and still love the Lord and go on and on and on. And then what's the other person saying? They're saying, man, what a carnal, worldly Christian. I'm just praying they'll get right with God. I'm praying they'll come back to Jesus, you know, and stop doing that thing. And on and on. And look, let the Lord deal with that person's heart. Now, that isn't all there is to it, because Paul's going to continue on here in verse 9. He says, but beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, there you are, you're eating at the temple restaurant, right? And you come by and, you know, somebody, this brother or sister, you know, has a real hard time, and they see you there. Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I'll never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. You see Paul there? Saying, listen man, it's not about rights. It's not about what I have the right to do. It's about what's loving towards my brother. And he says, beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block. The Corinthian Christians who had the so-called superior knowledge might feel the personal liberty to eat meat sacrificed to idols. But that's fine. But are you exercising your liberty in a way that becomes a stumbling block to somebody else? You Corinthian Christians say that you have knowledge, you're claiming your rights, but what about the rights of the weaker brethren? Because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. You could be leading another brother or another sister into sin because of your exercise of liberty. Now again, I want you to notice something here. Verse 9 points out something. And it's something that's almost hard for me to believe, and I don't think it's quickly believed among us. Paul says in verse 9, But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Did you notice that the brother who will not eat the meat sacrificed to an idol, he is considered the weak one? Now most of the time, we as Christians would consider such a one to be the stronger Christian. Well, you know, they won't do it. They won't touch a thing. They won't do this. They won't do that. You know, we figure the don't do's as being indicative of you being a stronger Christian. But Paul is not speaking about weak or strong in regard to self-control. He's speaking about weak or strong in regard to knowledge. And you run the risk of, through your exercise of liberty, of influencing your weaker brother to go against his conscience And to do that is to sin against Christ. Do you see what these Corinthian Christians who felt they had the liberty were doing? They're saying, look, man, it's not my problem. If they're all hung up on their legalistic trip, that's their deal. 
Paul says, no, it's not their deal. You're sinning against Christ. I think that was a real wake-up call for some of those Corinthians. In doing so, they were actually edifying their brother unto sin, building them up. Did you notice this here? Where it says in verse uh, 10, For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? That word emboldened is the same or comes from the same word for edified. You're building your brother up to sin instead of righteousness. You see, my friends, Paul makes it plain in verse 13. He says, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat. Paul makes the principle clear. Our actions can never be based just on what we know to be right for ourselves. We also need to consider what's right in regard to our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Listen, it's easy for a Christian to say, hey, man, I just answer to God and to God alone and to ignore his brother or sister. Now, it's true. You do answer to God and to God alone, but you're not just going to answer about eating meat, sacrificed to idols. You're going to answer for how you treated your brother or sister. And God's going to hold you to account for that. Now, at the same time, I need to point out something very important, which is often neglected in a passage like this. Notice what it says here in verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? Do you see the situation Paul is talking about? He's not talking about, okay, uh, there you are. You've got the freedom. You've got the liberty. Man, you're, you're, you're eating that lamb chop uh, in the temple restaurant there. And it's open patio and stuff. Man, you're doing it. It's a great meal. And somebody's walking by, and they look at you and go, I can't believe it. Oh, my heavens. There's the pastor. He's in there. Eating. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I, I, I'm going to leave Christ. I can't believe it. That's not what Paul's talking about. Do you understand what Paul's talking about? Paul's talking about the dynamic where the person walks by, and they see somebody eating in there, and they say, oh, man. I thought that was wrong for me, but man, maybe it's not wrong. I guess I can go ahead and do it. And they sit down and eat the meal. Paul's saying that is the wrong. Please understand, it's stumbling the brother and stumbling them over an issue that has a direct relevance to the brother in question. Paul would never allow this principle to be a means by which a legalist could bind a Christian walking in liberty through their legalistic demands. Let me just say this. Let's say uh, somebody comes up to me on a Sunday morning. They say, Pastor, I really need to talk to you. You're really stumbling me, brother. You're really stumbling me. They say, you know, the best church I ever went to that pastor wore ministerial robes. And he just had these great, majestic robes. And he said, Pastor, not only to the fact that you don't wear socks very often, that doesn't just offend me. He says, but Pastor, you really need to wear ministerial robes. And he says, Pastor, it really stumbles me that you don't wear those. You know what? I'm not going to pay any attention to the guy at all. Not for the sake of wardrobe, but for the sake of 
I'm not stumbling that brother unto sin. I'm offending his legalism. And you know what? Do you think Paul minded offending people's legalism? He deliberately sought out ways to chap the hide of legalists. I don't know, and I kind of have some of that same spirit within me, and that's, I'm just making confession right now. Man, when I see that legalistic ad, I almost want to go out of my way to, to you know, and I'm not saying that to my credit, believe me. But listen, here's the idea. It's not an issue of stumbling that person's legalism. It's an issue of enticing that person into sin. Oh, I'm so offended that I saw you smoking. Why? Did it make you want to smoke yourself? No, I could care less. I never touched the things. Then you're not talking about the situation Paul's talking about. You're not talking about that. Because what Paul's talking about is the dynamic of you stumbling somebody in the sense of you enticing them into sin, and at the very least, against sin against their own conscience. Adam Clark says this, Many persons cover a spirit of envy and uncharitableness with the name of godly zeal and tender concern for the salvation of others. They find fault with all. Their spirit is a spirit of universal criticism. None can please them, and everyone suffers by them. These destroy more souls by tithing mint and cumin than others do by neglecting the weightier matters of the law. Such persons have what is termed, and very properly too, sour godliness. Well, friends, Paul never wrote this to give that person who has sour godliness ultimate power in the Christian church. Can you imagine that? If that then, then the person who's the most offended rules the congregation. Oh, it offends me when we play the drums on Sunday morning. That stumbles me. All right, we take out the drums. Well, you know, it offends me when we sing, you know, How Great Thou Art. I just have a bad feeling about that song. Okay, well, we throw that out. You know, and pretty soon, it offends me. It stumbles me when we preach from the book of James, Pastor. It just, uh, where does it end, right? If the trump card is, it stumbles me, then it never ends. But Paul is dealing with the legitimate issue of enticing a brother or sister unto sin. And Paul says, if you're doing that, forget your rights, forget your liberty, lay them aside. Paul says, I'd never eat meat again, rather than run the risk of enticing my brother or sister into sin. And praise the Lord for Paul's kind of heart. All right, now in chapter 9, Paul is going to actually be dealing with a very similar kind of topic. Uh, Although he deals it from a personal perspective, but driving home the same principle. Look at it here in verse 1. He says, Am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are not you my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now again, let's remember the context. Paul is speaking to the Corinthians about their rights based on knowledge to eat meat sacrificed to idols, mostly in temple restaurants. Paul says, listen, I know about rights. I've let go of my own rights. You may have the right to eat that meat, but sometimes you need to let it go for the sake of the gospel. I'll show you how I've let go of some of my rights. And what rights did Paul give up? Well, we're going to see here in this uh, section, Paul gave up the right to be supported by the gospel. Now, it's very interesting what he says here in verse (laughs) 1. It's almost like the Rodney Dangerfield. Am I not an apostle? Really? And you know, that's exactly how Paul felt in front of the Corinthians. 
they disrespected this man majorly. They just didn't have a lot of, of respect for the Apostle Paul. I mean, why should Paul even have to ask that question? Am I not an apostle? What, Paul, are you kidding me? Of course you're an apostle. As obvious as that was, it was doubted and denied by some of the Corinthian Christians. To put the seal on it, he says, look, I've seen Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul had that vision of Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. He says, uh, are you not my work in the Lord? And then at the end of verse 2, he says, for you are my seal of apostleship. You, you want to know that I'm an apostle? The proof's in the pudding. Look at you guys. Look at the Corinthian church. I founded it. I started it. You are my seal of apostleship. Because if anybody should know it, you guys should know it. It's kind of ironic that the Corinthians were doubting Paul's apostleship. But they were. Now going on here to verse 3, he says, My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Paul says, okay, my defense, all right? Let me do the lawyer bit, Paul says. Let me argue my case. Because don't I have the right to eat and drink? Now you look at that and you go, duh, Paul, of course you have the right to eat and drink. You know, what, are the Corinthians saying you can't eat anything? No, what Paul means is, don't I have the right to eat and drink at your expense? Should not you, the Corinthian Christians, be supporting me in the ministry? Now, Paul didn't mean when he was off in a distant city. He meant when he was there. Let's remember that for some two years, Paul lived in the city of Corinth. And when Paul lived in the city of Corinth, he didn't take any money from the Corinthian church for his own needs. He supported himself. But Paul says, didn't I have the right to eat and drink at your expense? Didn't I have the right to bring along a believing wife and have her supported? Didn't I have the right to have you support me and my family because I ministered to you? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have to work instead of being supported by the church? Now it seems that Paul and Barnabas were unique in this regard. It seems that the other apostles freely received and accepted the support from the churches, and there was nothing wrong with that. But you know what's interesting? And this is just a weird kind of twisted thing, and the, the Corinthians were kind of twisted in their thinking. For some reason, the fact that Paul and Barnabas did not receive support from the Corinthian church while they were there, for some reason, that made them less respected in the minds of the Corinthians, not more. It's kind of like, if they were real apostles, then they would demand that we pay them. Paul says, no, that's not what we wanted to do. And the fact that they didn't receive this support somehow made them less respected in the eyes of the Corinthians. Now, why does Paul have this right? Take a look at verse 7. He says, Whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock, do I say these things as a mere man, or does not the law say the same also? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen God is concerned about? Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing that we reap your material things? If others are partakers of this right over you, are not we even more? Nevertheless, 
We have not used this right, but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? It's kind of a long section, but Paul has the same thought basically running throughout. He goes, listen, in a war, do you expect the soldiers to support themselves? No. He goes, what, do you expect a farmer to work in his field and he doesn't get to eat anything that grows there? Do you expect the shepherd to take care of the sheep, but he doesn't get to benefit from the sheep? Why does it seem strange to you that the minister should be supported, Paul asks the Corinthian Christians. Then he says, doesn't the law say the same also? After all, the law says that when you have an ox that's treading out the grain, and they would use it to break up the, the kernels, the husks of the, of the grain, and then they would winnow it and get it you know, separated. He goes, don't put a muzzle on that ox, and then the ox can eat while it's working. It would be unfair to you know, sort of tease the ox by making him work with all this grain right in front of him, but he can't eat any of it. And he says, listen, it's not so much oxen God is concerned about. After all, they can't read the Bible. It's not oxen. He's concerned about his ministers. Why? Notice it. So that we, so that he who plows should plow in hope, and he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. It would be cruel to starve the people who are preparing your food. It would take away all their hope. It would make them feel abused and unappreciated. So Paul says, listen, we've sown spiritual things among you. It's appropriate if we receive material things from you. Now, what I think is interesting about this, (laughs) verse 12, Paul says, if others are partakers of this right over you, are not we even more? (laughs) In other words, the Corinthians didn't mind supporting other of their ministers, but not Paul for some reason. They didn't want to support him. Now notice, Paul lays out very strongly, very firmly, the right of the minister to be supported by the people that he preaches to. But notice what he says in verse uh, 12. He says, nevertheless, we have not used this right, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Isn't that glorious? Paul says, I've got every right in the world to be supported by you Corinthian Christians. Now, let's remember chapter 8. Just like the Corinthian Christians would say, I've got every right in the world to eat that meat sacrificed to idols. And what would Paul say? He said, you know what? I have that right, but I'm not going to take it because it's not best before God. And he goes, you have the right to eat that meat sacrificed before idols, But not in every situation should you take that right because it's not best. Do you see how chapters 8 and 9 go together? He's laying out the principle from his own life. You see, he makes it very plain where his heart was at. Paid or not paid, it didn't matter to him. What mattered to Paul was the work of the gospel. Was it more effective for the gospel? If Paul should receive support, then he would receive it. Was it more effective for the gospel? If Paul should work and support himself, then he would do that. What was important was that the gospel would in no way be hindered. That's where Paul's heart was. And so that's why he goes on to say, look at verse 14. Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Very plain, though, but very important. 
You see, this is a command from the Lord that it's perfectly appropriate to have those who preach the gospel supported from the gospel. Now, I have to say that I'm, you know, just a tiny bit awkward talking about this before you because I'm a person who's supported by the preaching of the gospel. And it could be said that I stand before you talking about these things out of some motive for self-interest. But I just ask you to say that this is simply what the scriptures say. And my only objection is to those people who come up from time to time, and curiously, and I've never been able to figure out why exactly, uh, people from the Mormon church believe this and state this very loudly. They say that a paid ministry is an abomination before God. And I scratch my head and say, I don't know where you get that from the Bible. I mean, the Bible makes it very, very plain that it is not inappropriate in the slightest degree for a pastor to be supported by the people that he ministers to. It's just not inappropriate at all. So the question arises, should modern ministers take their right to be supported by the gospel, or would it be better if they released that right? And I just say, look at each individual situation. Listen, for sometimes, because of just where the church is financially or whatever, it would be a too strenuous burden on the church to support the pastor. So you know what? If that pastor has any heart of a shepherd at all and not the heart of a hireling, he'll say, listen, man, I'm in this doing the ministry. I'll work on the outside and do ministry however I can. Then he should do it. But in other situations, it's better for the congregation to have the full attention and time of that pastor. Listen, I know pastors, and I mean, of course, I've been there myself in the course of my ministry, where you're working 40 hours a week, or you're working sometimes longer, and then you go and you have to devote yourself to ministry. And folks, that's a tough, tough way to do it. And some guys I talk to, you know, they say, well, listen, you know, I mean, I can do it. I can make it work. You know, I got the time. I can do it. It's not just the time. It's that the time that you're given to ministry is the leftovers. You know, you come home after you're all exhausted after a day of work, and then you're going to try to study for three or four hours. That's tough. So the question isn't right or wrong or this or that. It's just what is better for the congregation? In some situations, it's going to be better if the pastor doesn't receive pay and if he works on the side. In some situations, it's going to be better for him to receive the support of the congregation. Just what simply matters is what's best for the congregation. Of course, then you get into the whole issue of how much should a pastor be paid. I mean, you can agree to the principle, you know, okay, you should have a paid ministry, and what you do, and I think there's two extremes that should be avoided there. You know, some people operate from the attitude, well, you know, we've got to keep the pastor humble, you know, and this and that, and you know, keep it on the poverty line or whatever. And I want to praise God that that's not the attitude of the elders of this church, you know, and they're the ones responsible for my uh, pay and for what, how much it is. I mean, I don't go around setting my own pay. That wouldn't be inappropriate. I just submit that to the elders, and they take care of that. It would be wrong to take the attitude, well, let's keep the pastor poor. But I tell you, it's also wrong to keep the well, you know, let's show everybody how blessed it is to serve God, and the pastor should take as much money as the church can give him. That's a wrong attitude, too. Listen, if you want to know at what kind of level the pastor should live, he should live at the same level of his congregation or at the community. You know, I mean, what's the standard of living in the community? He shouldn't be high above. He shouldn't be far below. He should be right there in the middle where the community is. Those are the people that he's ministering to. Those are the people he's trying to reach. He should live at that level. And that's just a simple way to do it. 
Now, might I add this, too, and I've read a couple quotes tonight from Adam Clark, but he just had some juicy things to say in his commentary here. If it's true that a pastor receives support from the congregation, might I say this, he better work for it. He better not be a lazy minister, but he better work hard. I mean, if it's a terrible thing for a person in secular employment to be a clock watcher and, you know, a time server and, you know, you just work when the boss steps in the room or this or that, how much more it is that way for a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Adam Clark says, if a man who does not work but takes his support from the church of God, it is not only a domestic theft but a sacrilege if he doesn't work hard. He that gives up his time to this labor has a right to the support of himself and his family. He who takes more than is sufficient for this purpose is a covetous hireling. He who does nothing for the cause of God and religion and yet obliges the church to support him and minister to his idleness, irregularities, luxury, avarice, and ambition is a monster for whom human language has not yet got a name. I'll tell you how you really feel there, Adam. I mean, uh, I think he's coming down pretty hard on that one, but uh, the principle is true. If you're going to be supported by the gospel, you, you need to work hard for it. Continuing on here, verse 15. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things that it should be done so for me, for it would be better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. Look, Paul says, I've used none of these things, right? Uh, The support is due to me, but I haven't used it. And then he says this. I love what Paul says here in verse 15. Nor have I written these things that it should be done so for me. You know, Paul isn't going, oh, I'm serving the Lord without any pay. And I'm just praying that maybe you Corinthians will find in your heart, you know, this, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, come on, hint, hint, hint. How about some? Paul says, forget it. That's not where my heart's at either. And notice what he says at the end of verse 15. For it would be better for me to die than if anyone should make my boasting void. What boasting, Paul? Well, he's going to tell us. Verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Paul says, listen, I'll boast. Now, I don't boast because I preach the gospel. No, he goes, I've got to preach. I've I've got to do it. Now, Paul's ministry was not just a matter of choice or personal ambition. It was something he was called to do. It was something that he had to do. Can I just say this? Paul just didn't have preacher's itch. He just, you know, didn't, oh, man, you know what? got to get up in front of everybody. I got to talk. You know, I got, I got to hear the sound of my own voice. You know, I got to have those people looking at me. No, Paul was called to preach and he was compelled to fulfill that call. So he says, that's no credit to me that I preach the gospel. But notice verse 17. For if I do this willingly, I have a reward. But if against my will, I've been entrusted with the stewardship, what is my reward then? that when I preach the gospel, I may present the gospel of Christ without charge, that I may not abuse my authority in the gospel. Isn't that great? Paul says, you know what my boast is? That I preach for nothing. Now, this was especially a sensitive point in Paul's day. 
Because in Paul's day, I would say even more than our own, there were religious entrepreneurs all around the world. Hucksters. Not just from Christianity, but from all the pagan religions. And they would go from town to town, preaching whatever doctrine or whatever thing, trying to get a following, just to get money out of people. And Paul says, I don't want anybody to think I'm one of those. That's why I support myself. And so Paul says, that's my boast. Not that I preach the gospel, but that I do it without charge. And he says, I do it willingly. I do it out of free choice. Now, friends, let me just point this out here. We may not ever be faced with the same decision Paul was, right? I mean, most of you in this room are never going to be faced with the decision, well, do I take money for preaching the gospel or don't I? But each of us have a critical question to answer. What rights are you willing to sacrifice for the cause of Jesus? Is there some liberty? Is there some right that you have right now? And you know what? You're right. It's your right. You can do it. But it would be better for the cause of Jesus Christ if you gave up that right. Paul said, that's my boast, that I can do that. Do you have anything to boast about in that regard? Maybe you don't. Maybe, hey, it's right for me. Who cares? No, Paul had something to boast about. He goes on to this, verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win the Jews. And to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law. Not being without law toward God, but under law towards Christ. That I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now I do this for the gospel's sake, that I may be a partaker of it with you. Listen, Paul was free to do whatever he wanted. He says in verse 19, I'm free from all men. But he didn't use that freedom in a self-indulgent way. He used that freedom to bring more people to Jesus Christ. So he goes, listen, when I hang around with the Jews, I'm not eating that barbecue ham sandwich. Because I become as a Jew. And then he says, listen, when I'm around the Gentiles, I'm not, you know, observing the Jewish customs. He goes, it doesn't matter. I'll become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now, please never think that Paul changed his doctrine or his message to appeal to different groups. What he would change was his behavior and his manner of approach. This is a very critical thing. Because many preachers, many churches, in the name of uh, accommodation for evangelism, you know, we've got to relate to people. They will adapt the message. They'll adapt the message to the people hearing it. You know, wow, you know, these people, you know, they, you know, they don't like to hear about sin. So I'm not going to tell them about sin. Let's talk about just, just how much God loves them. You know, oh, these people, you know, they, it, they don't want to hear about Jesus dying on the cross for them. So let's just talk about Jesus living in your heart. Friends, that's an abomination before God. This has to do with how one lives or behaves among those they want to evangelize. 
not with the message you're giving. Paul says, when I'm living among the Jews and want to reach them, I'll live as a Jew. When I'm living as a Gentile among them, I'll live as a Gentile. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter to me. What I eat, the little ceremony, who cares? Paul says, but the message, that's not changing. And he goes on, he says, I do this for the gospel's sake. You know, Paul, seemingly, was only willing to offend people over the gospel. And I love that. You know, I think it's really sad when um, a pastor or a preacher is willing to offend people over things other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, maybe over some political perspective, maybe over some you know, issue here and there, maybe over something in church government, maybe over this or that. I, I feel that as I stand before people, even as I contend for the truth, I, the only thing I want to offend people over is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, if they're offended at that, what can you do? But I don't want to offend people over something else. Here we go, finishing up here, verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest, when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. This is a great passage. Remember the context here. Paul is speaking about laying down your rights for something higher, for something better. And he goes, you know who has to do that all the time? Is an athlete. You know? The athlete says, don't I have the right to eat that box full of candy bars? Yeah, you do. You've got the right. But you're not going to be able to compete as well. Don't I have the right to never train and just sleep in all the time? Yes, you have that right. But you're not going to compete as well. Paul says, the athlete is willing to lay aside their rights for the sake of victory. Are you willing to do the same? And he draws on a lot of different illusions. He goes, I run, I fight. You know, sporting events were big in Paul's day. And uh, it would have been especially meaningful to the Corinthians. The city of Corinth hosted the second most prestigious athletic events in the ancient world. You had the Olympic Games in Athens, and then you had the Isthmian Games in the city of Corinth. These were very prestigious athletic games, and so they were sports nuts in, in Corinth. And Paul says, listen, when I run, I run with a purpose. When I fight, when I box, I'm not just beating the air. I'm just not shadow boxing. I'm serious about it. He goes, I'm running in such a way that I can obtain it. I'm competing as an athlete who really wants to win. Folks, he You'll never win unless you put some dedication to it. I don't know about you as parents, but I know that this is something that I work hard to impress upon children because I suppose all children are different, but I see it in my children that they're just not born naturally with a desire to work hard to achieve something. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like, yeah, Dad, I want to do that. And, you know, they'll try it a couple times and, oh, I must be great, you know. Or they'll see me do something. Well, I want to do it too. And they may have no idea all the hard work that went into learning how to do what I want to do. And we need to know that, 
you know, if you want to achieve something, it's, it's going to cost you something. There's going to be some investment involved. The same way it is with, the, with spiritual disciplines. Paul says, I discipline my body. I work hard. I bring it into subjection. Paul says he worked hard to gain this reward. I want you to look at verse 27. He says, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. What's interesting is the word there for preach isn't the normal word for preaching the gospel. It's a different word. It refers to the office of a herald. And this was somebody at an athletic games. It was like the announcer and the referee. And what the herald would do, what the preacher, so to speak, would do at the Olympic or at the uh, athletic event was they would, you know, they'd be like the, uh, the referee in a boxing match. Uh, okay, you know, none of this, none of that. You know, they'd lay out the rules. They'd guide the match. They'd tell the boxer, you do this, you do that. You know, they would conduct the fight. And Paul says, listen, I don't want to be the guy who's laying out the rules to everybody and I break the rules. He goes, no, no, no. And then he says, lest I should be disqualified. Now again, that's an athletic term. It refers to somebody who's rejected as not deserving the prize. Paul says, no, I don't want to come up short. So friends... 1 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, though in one of them Paul is dealing with meat sacrifice to idols, the other one he's dealing with the apostles' right to receive support from the churches. It's really dealing with the same theme, isn't it? Listen, we have a lot of freedom in Jesus Christ. We have a lot of rights. We have a lot of liberty. Praise God for it. But if you're not willing to lay aside that liberty as the Holy Spirit would lead you, for the sake of the gospel, and for the sake of the kingdom of God, then there's something wrong. You're never going to go on very far with Jesus Christ. And so when it comes up to all these hot-button issues, can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? Can I do this? Let the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. I have no desire to play Holy Spirit in your life. He can do a mighty fine job of that all on his own. Now, don't go around condemning Or excusing your brothers and sisters if they are of a different opinion on that. That's between them and God. And you know what? May I say this too in dealing with your children. Let's say uh, there's some forms of entertainment. I don't know, music or movies or something. That you don't feel are appropriate for you and your family. But another family in church, they feel it is appropriate for them. There is nothing wrong with you telling your children, Look, that's just not what we do in our family. And the XYZ family, they do it, and they think it's fine for them. That's great. That's between them and the Lord. Don't say, well, you know, we're praying for the XYZ family and their salvation. (laughs) You don't have to condemn them. Hey, you know what? Let the Lord deal with them. If they're wrong, let God speak to them. But you know what the Lord's speaking to your heart. You do it, and you fulfill it. And you be honorable to that. And God will bless you for it. Let's pray.